Well, good morning, church. He is risen. Indeed, he has. What a glorious truth that we get to celebrate this morning. Jesus Christ, the eternally preexistent Son of God, left the Father's side, left a perfect place in heaven, came down to earth, put on flesh to become one of us, lived here among us for some 33-odd years, enduring pain, suffering, loss, mistreated, maligned, tempted, yet he never sinned, never once broke any of God's laws, not in word, not in deed, not even in his thoughts, but he was charged with blasphemy. They said that he claimed to be the Son of God. They said that he claimed to be the King of the Jews. And they were right. He had made such claims. Guilty as charged. But it's only blasphemy if you're not the Son of God. And he was. They sentenced him to death. Death by way of Roman crucifixion. Execution that was always 100% effective 100% of the time. Nobody ever survived that. And he didn't either. He was stripped naked, nailed to a wooden cross, a crown of thorns thrust upon his brow. And after just a few hours, he said, it is finished And he breathed his last. That son of God, that king of the Jews, that king of the world had died. His body was laid to rest in a borrowed tomb. They closed that tomb with a stone rolled in front of it. They secured it with a seal. They set uh, Roman centurions to guard in front of it. And as all of, his, all of his followers went home that day, grieving and wondering, was this the end of Jesus? But that was Friday, and this is Sunday morning. And three days later, what happened on this day proved to everyone that what Jesus accomplished on Friday night was not the end of Jesus, but just the beginning. And so this morning, I want us to read the account of Jesus' resurrection from the Gospel of Matthew. So if you've got your Bibles, and I do hope that you do, please turn in them to the Gospel of Matthew, the 28th chapter. And this morning, I want us to unpack this glorious truth of the resurrection together this morning. And seek to understand its implications for our lives today. So Matthew chapter 28. We're going to read the entire chapter. Now after the Sabbath toward the dawn of the first day of the week. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to to see the tomb. And behold there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. 
But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled and the, with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people the disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much that there is a day in which we celebrate the resurrection. Father, we do that every single Lord's Day. We do that every week, every Sunday, as your people gather in this room and all throughout your created universe. They gather to worship you. They are able to gather, and they gather on the basis of your son's resurrection from the dead and all that it meant. But Father, this morning, in a unique and tangible way, we pause to think more deeply on the resurrection, for it is that which fuels our faith. It is the centerpiece of our worldview. It is the centerpiece of our faith. And so, Father, we, we ask that you'd speak to us from your word. And, Father, that you would encourage those who sense that they are still held captive to sin and death. We pray, Father, that you would use your words in this passage, in this chapter, Lord, to release captives, to set prisoners free. And Father, to orient our mind and our heart on the gospel, and that it may stay there until you come back to bring us home. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this chapter, we see three things. First of all, we see the reality of the resurrection. Second, we see a denial of the resurrection. And then thirdly, we see the good news of the resurrection. First, the reality of the resurrection. If you're new with us here at New Branch this morning, we want to, you to know at least three things at the outset. First of all, 
we want you to know that we're glad that you're here. We really are. We, we know that you could be doing a number of different things this morning, probably not the least of which is sleeping a little bit longer. And so we're glad that you chose not to. We're glad that you're here with us. But secondly, we also want, to, want you to know that we're here every Sunday. And if you don't already have a church home where you're hearing the word and you're hearing the gospel, we would be delighted to have you come back and be with us again. But thirdly, and most importantly, we want you to know that we absolutely believe the stuff that we just read. We are absolutely convinced of the veracity of the resurrection. To us, this is not an empty day of religious celebration. This is the day where we celebrate that which we are absolutely convinced is a reality and that which truly is the linchpin of our faith and our worldview, that Jesus, the Son of God, through his death and resurrection, became our Savior, that he died on a cross, he was buried in a borrowed tomb, and three days later, he rose from the dead. We know a Jesus who is alive, who is seated today at the right hand of the throne of God and, and who intercedes for us as our great high priest. To us, this is not a myth. This is a reality. And how do we know that it is a reality? Well, because we believe that this is the word of God that it was written by human authors under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The only thing that it gives us is 100% unadulterated and unfiltered truth. And because it only gives us truth, we believe what it tells us about these women and what they encountered when they went to the tomb is a reality. It really happened. And so on the first day of the week, we're told, which, by the way, would have been Sunday. We're told it's the day after the Sabbath. And, and by the way, this is why Christians gather on Sunday and not Saturday. Prior to this, God's people met on Saturday. But in honor of the Lord's resurrection, ever since then, God's people have gathered on the first day of the week instead of the last day of the week. And so this is the morning of the third day. And the women who had been closest to Jesus are going to the tomb. Now, why are they going to the tomb? Well, because they think that Jesus is there. Jesus had died on a cross. And they had seen them bury him in this tomb. And, and so they're going to this tomb, mourning, expecting to see Jesus there. They're mourning and they're bringing spices with them with which to prepare his body as was the custom and it was their expectation that they would find him there, that they would find the stone still in place, the seal still affixed, and the Roman centurion still on duty. But instead, as we're told here, the soldiers had been neutralized, the seal was broken, the stone was rolled back, and the tomb was in fact empty. An angel appears to them, and, and what does the angel say to them in this text? He says to them, he is not here, for he is risen, as he said. And Jesus had said that. A number of times, as, 
as Jesus and his disciples that he called to him in his earthly ministry, a number of times as they were doing ministry in and around Palestine, Jesus kept saying, we're on our way to Jerusalem. And when we get to Jerusalem, it's recorded many times in the Gospels, Jesus says, when we get there, I will be handed over to the chief priests and the authorities. And and they will condemn me to death. And they will hand me over to the Gentiles who will mock me and flog me and crucify me. And then I will rise on the third day. And it happened just as Jesus said. Jesus predicted it and it happened just as he had said. We really do believe this. But not everyone does. In fact, we're told from the very beginning Many have tried to discredit Jesus and deny the resurrection. And so that's the second thing that we see here. We see a denial of the resurrection. In our text this morning, the soldiers who were in charge of guarding Jesus' body came and reported to the chief priest what had happened in the tomb. And we're told that the chief priest gave them, quote, a sufficient sum of money. And then told them to tell a lie about it was the disciples, it was Jesus' disciples who came and took his body. What was that sufficient sum of money? Well, it was a bribe, right? It was a bribe, and the soldiers took the bribe, and they, they did as they were instructed. And that story, like they said, spread among the Jews and among the people to this very day. Other myths and theories about what happened to Jesus' body have abounded and persisted to this day as well. Some say he never died as a result of the cross, that he survived the crucifixion, which would have meant that he was the only person in the history of the Roman Empire, in the history of the practice of Roman crucifixion, that had ever survived it. It was 100% effective 100% of the time. Nobody ever survived that. Others suggest that maybe, maybe he just passed out on the cross. This is known as the swoon theory, that, that he just became unconscious. They, they thought he was dead, but, but he wasn't really a dead, and later he regained consciousness. To the one who asserts that this is true, that, that Jesus somehow survived crucifixion, either because it was somehow ineffective for him, or because he had just passed out and they just thought he was dead, to the one who asserts that, they haven't made their case to deny the resurrection because they still need to answer how after having survived what what nobody else had ever survived, which is crucifixion, how he was then able to start breathing again through these burial cloths that he was wrapped up in from head to toe. And how in his now physically compromised state, he was able to roll that stone away, which we're told by scholars weighed between one and a half and two tons. And by the way, it was set in place on an incline. It only took a couple of soldiers to roll it into place, but to move it out of place, to move it up the incline, it would have taken a host of soldiers. And how in his compromised state, not only did he roll the stone away, But he overcame these Roman centurions who were standing guard outside. But let's say for a moment that that was possible. 
It wasn't, but let's just say for argument's sake that that was possible, that he somehow survived all of that. He, he got out of the tomb. He made his escape. Where is he? Where's his body? We see in this passage the lengths to which the authorities were willing to go in order to quell this little rebellion of Jesus' followers there in Jerusalem. And in the coming days and weeks and months in this city, as Jesus' little band of followers went from about a hundred to thousands upon thousands in Jerusalem, and as these Jewish leaders began to lose their grip of control on the people in Jerusalem, they only had to do one thing in order to stop that little movement, and that was to produce a body. But they never did, and they never could. There wasn't a body to produce. Jesus was alive. He had come back to life. He had walked out of the tomb, and he had ascended to the Father. That's why they didn't have a body to present. But, but some will argue the very same thing that the chief priest here say, uh, that, that the chief priest told the soldiers to, to tell folks. That it was Jesus' disciples, that they're the ones who came and stole Jesus' body, who came and took him away, and that this, this ragtag bunch of fishermen and sheep farmers were just really, really, really good at hide and seek, and that they had hid Jesus' body, and nobody ever found his body. And as unlikely as that is, even if that had been the case, you still have to handle two more realities. One, that these Roman centurions that were guarding the tomb were the first century equivalent of Navy SEALs or Army Rangers. They were the best of the best, the hardest of the hard. And they wouldn't be caught dead sleeping on duty. Because if they were sleeping on duty, if they were caught sleeping on duty, they would be dead. And if it ever came out that they had lost their charge, that they had failed in their responsibility, not only would it be their last day to put on the Roman centurion badge, but it would be the very last day as a human. They would have been put to death, which is why the chief priests and the scribes had to promise to vouch for them before the governor. But second, even more convincing than that, even if they did steal Jesus' body, you've still got the enormous problem of overwhelming eyewitness testimony. Listen to the Apostle Paul as he describes this overwhelming eyewitness testimony to the church in Corinth. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now listen to the eyewitness testimony of his post-crucifixion appearances. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter. They appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. What Paul means there is there are more than 500 people who witnessed Jesus' post-resurrection appearances. Some of them have fallen asleep. Some of them have died. But most of them are still alive, so go ask them. Go ask them. They saw him walking around 
after he died on the cross, after he had been put in the grave. And Paul says, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. What happened to these eyewitnesses? Well, with respect to the 12, every single one of them, except for the apostle John, as we read at the end of, or, or learned about at the end of Revelation last week, he was exiled as an 83-year-old man on the island of Patmos. But all the others were martyred. They were executed because they refused to recant in their belief that Jesus did in fact rise from the dead and he is Lord. All the rest were martyred. Now, is it possible that they died for a lie? Because after all, we know that happens all the time, right? That people die for a lie. Islamic suicide bombers are dying for a lie. The difference is, they think it's true. They really do believe that once they hit that button and the explosives on their chest explode, that in the very next moment, they will be in paradise with 99 virgins. They think that's true. They don't think it's a lie. They don't think, they're not thinking, you know, I, I, don't, I don't want you to think that's true. I, 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 I'm not convinced that there's paradise after this. I think that's, I think that's kind of made up, but I'm going to go ahead and press this button anyway. No, they really believe it's true. People are willing to die for a lie all the time, as long as they think it's true. But nowhere do we find a group of people who are willing to die for something that they know is a lie. But that's exactly what every single one of these disciples did if they did this. Denying the resurrection is nothing new. It's been around, as we see here, from the day after the the resurrection itself. It's nothing new, and it continues today. But consider with me for a moment why the enormous amount of time and energy and effort that is put into developing theories as to why this, possibly, this couldn't possibly be true about Jesus. Why all the energy spent denying the resurrection? Well, it's because those who do so understand the implications of the resurrection and how catastrophic it is for those with an opposing worldview. And so this leads us to the third point from this passage, the good news of the resurrection. But why is it good news? What makes the resurrection of Jesus Christ the absolute best news in the history of the universe, the greatest event the world has ever known? Why is it good news? And more particularly, more specifically, how is it good news for you and I this morning, today? Four reasons that I want to close with. First, the resurrection is good news because it means that the bad news has been addressed. It's been, it's been fixed. The bad news has been answered and remedied. You know, some people don't want to hear bad news about themselves, that something is wrong with them, either because it's too hard to hear 
or because they simply don't believe it to be true. But if it is true, no matter how hard it is to hear, it's absolutely essential that we hear it so that something can be done to fix it, right? We've probably all been in that situation. We're out with friends at a nice restaurant, and as we're eating, as we're talking with our friends, someone on the other side of the table is trying to get our attention about something on our too. Let's say it's a shriveled up piece of dark spinach that's covering both of those front two teeth. You get the picture, right? How silly would it be for us to so not look, want to look like a toothless goon that we ignore the news that we do in fact look like a toothless goon? You know, the news that we look like a toothless goon may be embarrassing, may be hard to hear, but it's absolutely important that we hear that news so that we can do something to not look like a toothless goon, right? So bad news, while difficult to hear, if it's true, it's absolutely essential that we hear it. And for the scriptures are very, very clear that there is bad news about all of us that we all must hear. Let me demonstrate this from the first three chapters of the book of Romans. In the book of Romans, Paul, in the first, second, and first part of the third chapter of the book of Romans, gives them the bad news. I'll summarize it this way. Paul says, first, we're all sinners. We've all chosen to disobey God, and none of us are exempt from that guilt. Secondly, because of that, we're all separated from God, that we have no righteousness of our own with which to merit a standing before a holy God. And so we're separated from Him in this life and in the next life. And thirdly, and worst of all, not only are we sinful and separated, but we're hopeless. In that, condi- in that condition. We cannot change that predicament one iota through our own good works, through our own doing of good. It's never going to change anything about our predicament. It's hopeless. We are sinners who are separated from God. But then beginning in the 21st verse of Romans 3, Paul changes the news from the bad news to the good. He says, but now. But is the greatest uh, word of contrast in all of Scripture. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Paul had just told them in the previous verses that it was impossible for us to earn righteousness by following the law, by trying to be a good person. That that was a dead end road and all that did is prove to us that we are sinful. And so we can't achieve righteousness. But now he says, now the righteousness of God has been manifested. So what is this righteousness that he speaks about? Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's the bad news again. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. 
Verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And so, see what he's saying here. He, he further articulates the bad news that because we are sinners, number one, we have no righteousness of our own. Secondly, because we're sinners, we're prisoners. We're held captive to sin and to death. And thirdly, because we're sinners, we stand under the righteous wrath of God. His wrath against sin. That is bad news. Friend, that is the bad news. The bad news is not that you lost your job. The bad news is not that the economy has tanked or that inflation is high. The bad news is not that things aren't going the way you want them to in your life. The bad news is not that you haven't met that special someone. The bad news is not even that you got a, a bad diagnosis from the doctor. As bad as that news is, the bad news, the bad news, is that we have no righteousness of our own with which to merit a standing before a holy God. The bad news is that we are prisoners. We are held captive to sin and death, and we have no hope of changing that. The bad news is that we stand under the wrath of God with no answer. That's the bad news. But Paul here as the good news that addresses that bad news. So if the bad news is that we have no righteousness of our own, Paul says now that, that those who are in Christ have been justified by his grace as a gift, which means that those who place their faith in Jesus Christ as their only hope for rescue from what we all deserve, that we receive his righteousness as our own. We who have no righteousness of our own, now by faith, we get the righteousness of Jesus, his perfect sinless life credited to our account. So now because the grave is empty, those who have placed their faith in Christ alone as their only hope have this righteousness. And now, therefore, based on that, they are justified. They are made right to stand before a holy God, not because of their own goodness, but in spite of their own badness, they stand before a holy God based on Jesus' goodness. They have that righteousness now. Because of the resurrection, it fixes that bad news. Secondly, in response to the bad news that we are held captive to sin and death, the good news is that by Jesus' sinless life, substitutionary death, and victorious resurrection, we who place our faith in Jesus are redeemed from sin and death, not held captive to it. We are released from their grip forever. In Christ, we were forgiven of our sins, and we are released from captivity. We, literally, we are set free out of the prison of sin and death forever. And the bad news that we stand under the righteous wrath of God is remedied and addressed by the good news that on the cross, Jesus satisfied the wrath of God against our sin. 
He satisfied it. That's what the word propitiation means. It it means the satisfaction of anger. It means the satisfaction of God's wrath against sin. And it was satisfied not by our ability to be a better Christian, not by our ability to come to church more often, but by Jesus' death in our place. And that was made effective through his resurrection. Now, how do we know that Jesus' death on the cross satisfied the wrath of God? How do we know that it satisfies his wrath, of, his wrath against our sin? We know that because the tomb is empty. We know that because of the resurrection. See, payment was made on Friday. Full payment was made. No other payment needs to be made. Nothing else needs to be done to set prisoners free and to redeem lost sinners like you and I. All of it was paid Friday night. The money was put on the counter. But on Sunday morning, the resurrection of Jesus Christ means that God the Father accepted that payment in full. The payment was made on Friday and on Sunday morning with the empty tomb. That meant that that payment was sufficient to cover over the sins of all those who trust in Christ alone. And so have you? Have you trusted in Christ alone as your only hope for rescue from what we all deserve, which is an eternity apart from this God? Have you? If you have not, then friend, the bad news is still bad news for you. You still have no righteousness of your your own. You're still a prisoner held captive by sin and death. And you still stand under the wrath of God. And one day you will have to give an account for your life to him. And if that's true of you this morning, I beg of you to place your faith in Jesus Christ, his sinless life, his substitutionary death, and his victorious resurrection as your only and sufficient hope for rescue from that bad news. Why is the resurrection good news? First of all, because it deals with some very bad news. Secondly, it's good news because it means that our faith in Jesus is not useless. We read earlier some very familiar words from the Apostle Paul. Let me go back and read a portion of that. Paul says to the Corinthians later from 1 Corinthians 15, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's it's true that the dead are not been raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, look at this, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, meaning those who are believers in Jesus, who believe this about him, who have died, have just perished. They're just in dirt. They didn't go on to something better. 
And then concludes that thought with this. In verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If our hope in Christ is only for this life, that we just live a better life and that we would enjoy good stuff and that we'd be happy and blessed in this life. If that's all it is, what's Paul's conclusion? We are of all people most to be pitied. Because it's not about that. If Jesus is still in the grave, then our faith in him as Savior, our faith in him as the Lord, our faith in him as Redeemer and Rescuer is pointless, useless religion. That's all it is. And even worse, if that's the case, all this bad news is still true. We have no righteousness of our own. We're still captive to sin and death, and we stand still under the righteous wrath of God. But Jesus is not still in the grave. His body was not stolen. He didn't pass out and later regain consciousness and walk out. No, he was dead. He was in the tomb. And then he was not in the tomb because he was raised to life. And he ascended to the Father. And so our faith in him is not useless. It's not vanity. Instead, our faith in him as Lord and Savior shows that we too are now alive. What once was dead is now alive in Christ. And that brings us to our, to our third reason why the resurrection is good news. It's good news because it means that we are new in our spirit, that we're a new person. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, that means that that we are a new, new creation. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, how are we in Christ? Well, we are in Christ by putting our faith in a crucified and risen Savior. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, Paul says. The new has come. We were created the first time in the image of God. And we destroyed that image. We marred that image with our sin. But when we place our faith in a crucified and risen Savior, we are recreated in Christ. We're a new person. We're a new creation. No longer held captive to sin. No longer in sin's grip. Now set free from both the penalty of sin and the power of sin. And not just set free. But because we are a new creation, we're literally given new spiritual life. Paul writes this in Romans 8, verses 10 and 11. But if Christ is in you, again, how does that happen? When we place our faith in Christ, crucified and risen for our justification. But if Christ is in you, Paul says, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. So we who were formerly dead spiritually, now we who are in Christ, who trust in Jesus, are made alive. Now the spirit that was dead is made alive. That's what Paul says to the Ephesians in Ephesians 2. You were once dead in your trespasses and sins, but now God has made you alive in Christ Jesus. New spiritual life. And not only that, this resurrection also means that we have the new hope of our own resurrection. He says in verse 11 of Romans 8, 
If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, which again happens by faith in a crucified and risen Savior, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your own mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So not only does Jesus' resurrection mean new spiritual life for those who place their faith in him, but it also means we now have the hope of our own bodily resurrection one day. So it's good news that we are a new person because of faith in a risen Savior. Now sin doesn't hold us captive anymore. We're prisoners who are set free from that. Now we can live faithfully and obediently to him because now we're alive in our spirit where once we were dead. Now we can fight against indwelling sin and win because the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is alive and working in us. Now we have been recreated to do that which we were created to do in the first place, which is to worship God and give him glory. And all of this is made possible because of the new life that is given to us because of the resurrection to those who are in Christ. And then finally, the resurrection is good news because it means that the mission is now in our hands. At the end of Matthew 28 that we read, the resurrected Jesus meets up with his followers on a hill outside of Galilee. He made an appointment with them. He says, meet me at that hill I told you about. And there he gave them the Great Commission. This is the marching orders from our king given to us just before he ascended back to the Father in heaven. Listen to the marching orders of our king. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And I will be with you always to the end of the age. It's an obvious point to make, but true nonetheless, that Jesus couldn't have given us this great commission if he had not risen from the dead. But he did. And now he commands each of us who are his to take this gospel message about a crucified and risen Messiah to people in the world who desperately need it and are headed for a Christless eternity apart from him and those for whom that bad news is still very much bad news. Jesus has entrusted this gospel message to the church And the church, as you know, is not me, is not the staff, is not the elders or deacons. The the, the church is us. The church is you and I who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ as our only hope. We are the church, and the Great Commission has been trusted to us. So may we be found faithful. Friend, the resurrection is very much good news. It is the best news. But the question that each of us must wrestle with this morning is not just, is it good news in general, but is it good news for you? Let me just ask you that. Is the resurrection of Jesus Christ good news for you? The bad news is very real. It's the realization that because of your sin, you are spiritually dead. 
and that you are doomed for a Christless eternity with no hope of escape from that predicament. And if we reject that bad news, we do so at our own peril because then we will have no reason to listen to the good news and consider its implications. And so I implore you this morning, don't harden your heart and close your ears to the bad news. Hear it, grieve it, and long for rescue from it. Friend, then and only then are you ready to hear the good news. That because of Jesus' sinless life, substitutionary death, and victorious resurrection, those who turn to him in faith and trust in him as their only hope for rescue from that bad news will be forgiven. For them, God's wrath against their sin are satisfied by Jesus, and they're granted access to everlasting life with God. That, my friend, is the point of Easter. So come to him this morning. It's not about walking an aisle, raising a hand, or anything like that. We don't do that here. It's about you in the quietness of your heart, admitting to him that you are a sinner who deserves this bad news. And that though you've tried to overcome that bad news by any manner of whatever it was, trying to be good, going to church a lot, that you have no hope of avoiding that bad news. Tell him that you desire to be reconciled to him and that you know your only hope for that reconciliation is Jesus, crucified and risen. Trust in Christ alone this morning. Come to him in faith. Be rescued this morning. Don't continue to try to do it by your own efforts. And for those whom God has saved by grace through faith already, let us once again rejoice that because of Jesus' victory over the grave, his final words on the cross can ring true for us this day and every day. It is finished. No more work needs to be done to make sinners like us acceptable to God. It's done. It's finished. The payment was made and the payment was made in full and it was accepted as sufficient to cover our sins. No debt remains on our ledger. We are debt free because the death of Jesus was not the end of Jesus. It was just the beginning. Let's pray. Lord, there is no more glorious news than that which we celebrate this morning. It seems as though sometimes we may take it for granted. That we may seek to find ourselves moving on from this elementary stuff to bigger and greater and deeper things of the Lord. There is absolutely nothing deeper than the amazing grace and the incredible divine love that you've shown to us through the cross and the empty grave.
And so, Father, we, we rejoice in that good news this morning. We were here in this very room on Friday night, remembering what Jesus did at the cross. And we grieved and we mourned as we memorialized his sacrifice, his passion, as we considered the depth of pain that it was for you and he as he bore our sin on the cross and you turned your face away. But now, now it's Sunday morning and the grave is empty and the cross is bare and Jesus is alive and that makes all the difference for everything and everyone. Father, we pray for those that are among us that don't know Christ in this way. God, would you give them new life in Christ? Would you walk them across the line of faith to stop trusting in themselves and to stop trusting in their abilities to be a good person, to try to somehow achieve your righteousness, to achieve your favor? Instead, make the reality of the bad news ring loud and clear in their hearts and minds such that it is unavoidable. And then they long for rescue and they see Jesus as the only way. Father, I pray that you would walk that person in this very room across the line of faith this morning to trust in Christ alone. And Father, we just want to say thank you so much for making a way for us to be reconciled to you. We love you deeply and desperately, and we know that we could not love you if you had not loved us first. And so we thank you for the love displayed on the cross, and we thank you for the hope of an empty tomb. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.